From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week, coming to you live from New York, which is pretty damn cool. All right, this week we bring you Samsung Pay launches international payments in the US, Credit Karma moves into savings as Brex moves into cash management, and financial jargon brings people out in sweats. That's kind of terrifying. All this and much, much more on today's show. But before we get into that, you may have heard by now that we've made a documentary. It's called 11 Years, The Rise of UK Fintech, and is now available if you head over to 11years.film. In the first 60 minutes, what you will learn is how the financial crisis caused a reform in the UK regulation that encourages competition, why London is the perfect environment for fintech innovation, which I know is ironic given we're in New York this week, uh, why UK fintech is so attractive to VC firms, and so, 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 so much more. So head over to to 11years.film and I mean share it with your mum she'll suddenly realize what you do for a job all right let's get on with the show welcome to episode 365 of fintech insider recorded here in new york this week we're coming to you from the lovely lovely studio just across the road from our brand new office here in barclays rise today we're joined by my colleague and co-host will how's it going will uh, all good yep hi there are you sort of just about acclimatized to like New York now? Like, uh, I mean, both from a time zone perspective and I've eaten everything known to man since I've been here. So like, have right. you, you've just about got used to everything, right? I was just getting healthy last week and then you and Zoe turned up. <laughs> We've done nothing but eat bad food. It's been amazing. It's been amazing food. I will not have it said that it's bad. Um, but it's been a pretty fun week, right? It's been a very, very busy week. It's been serious fun. I mean, we could probably like talk about the stuff that we've been doing over the last three days for the whole hour, but there's like three other people sat here, so like, <laughs> we really should like give them a go, shouldn't we? All right, first up, we have Nicholas Kopp, who is the US CEO of N26. How's it going? Hey, guys. Good. I mean, you go everywhere, like literally everywhere we've been, I've seen an advert for you guys, which is pretty impressive. Like uh, you've uh, hit New York with a banger. Yeah, that's uh, good news that you guys see that everywhere. Uh, we have a good marketing team, I'd say, uh, marketing team. Um, we are, uh, yeah, we just launched here in the United States actually a couple of weeks back uh, with our checking account and debit card. Uh, really exciting stuff. Uh, we have a lot of customers signing up and we're churning out an o- a lot of new features for them. Um, so nice, exciting times. I mean, you've been over here for two years, right? So we're like, in terms of like tips of where to go and where to eat, like we'll definitely be picking up with that after the uh, after the show. All right, next up we have uh, Asia Bradley. Did I say that right? Asia. Asia it's Bradley. It's all good though. I mean, like I have like a terrible <laughs> reputation for getting people's names wrong, so I, I apologize. In, uh, I mean, I should have apologized in advance, but I'll continue to apologize as I get it wrong all the way through. Uh, and your uh, VP partnerships at Sokya. Correct. Um, yeah, you did us, pronounce that correctly. Well, I mean, one out of two is pretty good, right? Um, tell us a little bit more about the company. Yeah, so Cure does ID verification. So we actually um, apply AI and machine learning to uh, identifying individuals without any sort of friction. We help reduce fraud. Um, so we we are pretty well established in the field, and but we're kind of behind where the secret sauce that most of the Really amazing fintechs and uh, financial service providers use. Looking at nobody in particular. Good. Nobody at all. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> all right. Last up, we have Colin Gulster. I got that. You nailed it. Thanks. Nice. Dave. There we go. Head of business development over at Nova Credit. How's it going? Very well. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit more about the company. Sure. So Nova Credit is a cross-border credit bureau. So we solve the problem of helping global citizens, newcomers, immigrants, expats, get access to credit when they decide to move abroad for living, working, studying. And the way that we do that is we partner with credit bureaus in their home country, and then we're able to pull their credit history in real time and provide that to lenders in their destination country. 
Very cool. I mean, it's actually very cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, Nick, I didn't have to get anybody to explain what N26 is. I think our listeners know who, uh, who you are, but uh, I will kind of come back to more and more stuff that you're doing during this anyway. All right, let's get on with the news. So this week we have, uh, first up, the story over on Finextra is Samsung Pay launches US international money transfers. So American users of Samsung Pay can now send money overseas and sign up for virtual MasterCard debit cards. Um, Samsung has teamed up with London-based fintech Finabir, who I've never heard of before, on a uh, money transfer feature who are owned by Travelex, interestingly. So the service allows American users to send funds to 47 countries from within Samsung Pay app, which is pretty cool, right? It feels like this is actually quite an interesting thing that you know both Apple Pay and Samsung Pay start to move just outside of the payment side of things. But, I mean, does anybody have a Samsung phone around the table? Mm-mm. Okay, so is anybody going to use this one? Mm-mm. Okay, Silence. but it's cool anyway, right? <laughs> is it though? I don't know. Is it? I mean, I, I honestly don't see the application for it. There's plenty of ways that I can already send money around. So I wasn't looking for a new one. Honestly, I want something that's quick and easy on my phone. And I bank with a major bank and they've got sufficient uh, processes to allow that. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is going to be interesting to see. I hadn't really thought of the connection between, I mean, the one-off payments either. I mean, the uh, it's not the underground. What's it called here? Subway. The Subway. Mm-hmm. There we go. The Subway here has started to take contactless payments, right? So actually, Samsung Pay will start getting moved, used more and more for that. But I'm probably not going to do that and then decide to send money to the UK. You know, like it just seems like a, a maybe a slightly different leap. So maybe just because they could doesn't mean they should, which is definitely a Jurassic Park reference. Just saying. I don't even know that reference. Um, yeah, I, it seems like a weird adoption uh, approach. You know, like um, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, the whole game is mass adoption. The subway thing here is very cool from a very nerdy perspective because you only have to do it at one end, uh, which means that they can go station <laughs> by station anyone any london listeners that's kind of extraordinary um but like yeah it's how's this going to get more adoption like you know what 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 matters more is are you going to use it for your groceries are you going to use it for food are you going to it's the same thing um but you know like like what you need to use a lot more i don't really see how the uh, international thing is going to increase that See, it's, it's, it's one that I'm not sure America is like the case study for this one. I think essentially, you know, somewhere where you're starting to use maybe sort of more and more mobile payments and then international remittance becomes part of that, it would make more sense. But I'm just not sure America is like the target audience, essentially. I mean, part of the question might be that if you're quoting a statistic of 9% of U.S. consumers are using Apple Pay and, you know, how many percentage of the users are actually, you know, holding a Samsung phone. Um, I mean, looking around this table, we all have our Apple iPhones, but it could be, and I have don't know these statistics, but how many immigrants actually can't afford the Apple iPhone? So they might be using Androids or Samsung products. And so in their case, they are trying to send money internationally. So Maybe. it could just be a situation where we aren't, the target market. Very true, very true. I guess um, on this one, it's probably going to be one of those ones where I have to like watch. Uh, so, I mean, prove us wrong, Samsung, prove us wrong. All right, moving on, we have another story actually on Finextra, which is Credit Karma moves into savings. So, US credit scoring outfit Credit Karma is launching its first financial product, offering its 100 million members. Damn, didn't realize they had so many customers. Uh, the opportunity to open a high-yield savings account. So Credit Karma is not becoming a bank. They've been very, very clear about saying that. Instead, their platform facilitates the opening and managing of accounts where savings and households can insure up to $5 million through their licensed partners. So, I mean, 
this is quite interesting, right? What do you guys think of this? Have they made any comments about the use of funds that they're intending to do with the deposits? I mean, that's the key question on my mind. It doesn't appear to be. No, I don't think they've basically said what they're going to be sort of doing with it beyond it, but just really like the provision of services. I mean, I didn't realize Credit Karma had 100 million members for starters. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? That's pretty great. Did you actually, is that a, U, is that a global number or a U.S. number? Because if it's a U.S. number, it would be through the roof. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's U.S. specific. So it's kind of insane. I mean, we at SoCure are quite excited um, by these numbers. <laughs> Sounds like opportunity, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we're quite happy and, and obviously we'd like to see them succeed. Um, I think to answer your question, Colin, again, I'm just, you know, this is just conjecture. But if you look at them wanting to offer, you know, an over 2% interest rate, they definitely need to put that money somewhere to be able to earn those kinds of returns. Um, are they even going to call it, they're not calling it an interest rate, so they are going to have to be very careful about the terminology that they use in this case. But um, all I can say is we're pretty excited for Credit Karma. I think they've got a really great audience and they've got um, definitely a strong user base. So, you know, if you look at it, even let's say on a very conservative side, only 20% adopt it, 20% of 100 million. They're well on their way. Yeah. So, I mean, um, sort of reading, reading through this, the story, the 100 million is globally. So, uh, yeah, the 100 million is not just in the US. That would have been rather impressive, I have to say. But, I mean, even still, 100 million globally is, is still pretty impressive. So, yeah. Uh, I've, credit- got, I've got one question on this, which is, though, like, if you're looking at Credit Karma, you're looking because you're trying to buy a house or you're trying to buy a credit product. Is savings, like, the obvious next thing that you're thinking of doing? I mean, I know, I know they've got a very, very strong brand, and it's obviously incredibly widely needed here. And 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 I've I've, I've used the UK equivalent, which is ClearScore, and then subsequently got a credit card, which is like a logical flow. But I just don't wonder whether savings is. I I don't know. So from a from a or like N twenty six coming from Europe into the United States, um, there's one thing that clearly stood out if you look at numbers or statistics or frankly also do your personal user research is how much more people in Europe save and how, how much higher these savings rates are compared to, for example, the United States. So if you use a credit karma to take out a loan um, for your, I don't know, analyze your score. I haven't actually used a service myself, but uh, to uh, analyze your credit score in anticipation of taking out a loan for a car or a house, um, I do see a use case as well where you say like, okay, I do want to take out a loan for a larger purchase, but I want to start saving some of my smaller pocket money for other long-term goals that I have. And so I do see actually a natural overlap in the service potentially. Hmm. Yeah, and I think the same kind of trust to that point that's required to get the consumers onto the platform in the first place. I mean, one of the reasons why Credit Karma has built the world-class customer acquisition engine that all of us envy is partly because they have built so much trust with the consumers. And them insourcing more of the value chain, including like whether it's like you're building toward your savings goals of whatever lending product you're looking for. I think that actually is a natural synergy of their core strength, which is just the brand with the consumer. Um, And I think it's a logical next step. I mean, if I'm sitting in their shoes and thinking about how I'm going to capture more of the consumer value, it probably is insourcing more of the, um, you know, personal financial management needs, let's call it, of the consumer. And they have a lot of the info already. So I think they can make it very seamless and easy for people to just, you know, it's an additional two or three, I don't know, haven't gone through the experience, but two or three clicks mm. and you have that savings account. Mm. I mean, I, I think I'm probably with you, Will. It feels like maybe not the top of funnel for savings accounts particularly, but I mean, uh, very similar to the Samsung one. Let's let's see if they sort of prove us wrong to a certain degree, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I can see some interesting ideas there where you've already 
you've effectively credit scored them and then you know more about the customer. So there's no like KYC issues at that point. Mm. I mean, literally not. I mean, yeah, I, I guess it's just if those customers have money to save or whether they're in a situation where because they're going through that process, you know, your your point with ClearScore or actually you were doing it to get a credit card, weren't you? So, and actually if their target audience are mainly, I, I guess if their target audience are mainly people looking to secure a mortgage, then there's a deposit which would lead to the opportunity for kind of additional savings, wouldn't it? So, And, and your credit score is used an awful lot more here back home so like it's it's employment it's your your mortgage so, so wait you can't get employed if you've got bad credit right really i'm not the, i'm not the u.s citizen here but i have not heard of that use case actually before <laughs> for employment history yeah no credit checks get used for all sorts of things in the u.s that they don't get used for outside of the u.s right. employment is one of them um including government employment yeah. actually so getting a job with the government is uh in some cases contingent on your ability to okay. pass a credit check see that makes a lot more sense because like that like i you know, I've heard it in China, but, mm-hmm. but, yeah, well, uh, but like that's a different ball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Came off a bit Trumpy then. That was weird. Didn't mean to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, definitely I think in places where you're, uh, you know, in a more of a trusted position, either from government or, or whatever, then, uh, then definitely that's, I think happens everywhere, doesn't it? But yeah, it's a bit of an interesting, I, I would argue it's actually a cultural thing about Americans actually, that it's, uh, if you look around the world, of course, you know, you know, credit risk underwriters around the world rely on credit scores for different reasons. But in the U.S., it's sort of, uh, I think we, I don't know what it is about Americans, but we seem to think that it does represent, so your ability to operate as a credit manager somehow reflects your fundamental character as a person. Maybe that's true, but it's definitely an American claim that that's true, you know, and, and I don't know that that's true even in like Canada or somewhere. I mean, there's a lot in that really, because it's, you're essentially sort of managing, can you manage yourself in that way to, you know, uh, so sort of stay true to it. So you can see where it would essentially represent how you make decisions, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people get into debt and uh, not all of them are always their own fault to a certain degree. You know, there are people who are either sort of mentally ill, you know, manic depressives who spend all of their money and then change it in terms of where they're, where they're at. So it's it's really hard to almost like how you would back out of that to a certain degree. So Yeah, even uh, just circumstance, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people fall victim to all sorts of things that, you know, illness or whatever it might be that puts you out of a job. I I mean, I think, yeah, it comes down to um, your beliefs about what it sort of says about your character. And I I don't know that it needs to be so, uh, I think in in America, maybe we love to tell a moral arc to things, right? They maybe don't even have to have that kind of storyline. And I think um, in an interesting way, credit has become intertwined. You know, we like to point to China as the example of uh, how that becomes dangerous. But, you know, one could argue that in the U.S. it's already sort of starting to be a too close to your personal worth. And on the other end, we've also gamified it, right? So everyone is aware of their score. We're teaching people to constantly check your score every month. We say it's an identity issue, but really it, it's turned into a competitive sort of gamified version where you're checking every month. Did it go up? Did it go down? Mm-hmm. And it's literally like every month it'll go up or down a point and you're like, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> How did it go there? Um, so it's, it's really become yeah. that. And, and yeah, we do identify ourselves by our credit score. I've heard people actually brag to each other about like what score they have. And I wow. thought, wait, are they really doing that? <laughs> um, we, I'm, I'm Canadian. And so we didn't have that. And I wish you guys had been around when I moved to the U.S. because yeah. I was treated like a, an invisible person. So we have a poster child here for Nova Credit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, Do, doing business here. This is good. Yeah, 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 that's right. yeah. Let's get your credit score from Canada. <laughs> TU right. and Equifax. Um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, if you look at Experian, their like boost product, it's like the best example of this. If you've seen their ads on TV, I've personally find them quite funny where they've got all these consumers being like, 
I did Experian Boost and I gained like seven points on my credit score. And it's just sort of like left unsaid. It's like, hooray. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what is it uh, worth? Like, what does that actually say about me as a borrower? And, and how does that benefit me? Um, but it is this gamification, I think, is a very astute point. It's, you're now keeping up with the Joneses on your credit score. Yeah. And mm. suddenly that seven extra points now is just going to fix your life. Forget about healthcare. Forget about anything else. <laughs> you know, forget about any addiction issues. <laughs> like, hey, your score just got boosted by experience by seven points. Woohoo! <laughs> and frankly, like Credit Karma and like why we initially talk about this topic live exactly from that gamifi- gamification, right? So that's what partially makes them also so successful yeah. because it has that sort of addictive um, nature. Mm. That's a good point. Even though like... Um, color scheme, something as banal as that. It's like, it's very like vivid colors. It's like, oh, I want to be in the green. I don't want to be in the red. Like, I'm going to stay away from that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Just turns out you can make anything fun with good interfaces, aren't you? But uh, <laughs> All right, moving on. Next up on Payments Journal, we have Brex launches its cash management account. So this is Brex has this week launched uh, Brex Cash, a cash management account for businesses. Uh, it integrates with Brex, I'm saying Brex a lot in this, pre-existing corporate credit card for startups, uh, meaning business will be able to wire money in less than a minute. The company has partnered with Boston-based Radius Bank to access the automated clearinghouse. Pretty cool, again. Like, I mean, Brex have done an amazing job to sort of scale so quickly. So I think it was 2017 when those guys were founded. So, you know, the the idea that they've actually been able to do all of this, get to market, launch different products, find decent product market fit on this stuff is pretty impressive. Um, Have you guys kind of had any uh, sort of interactions with this? I mean, I I interviewed Enrique last week, I think it was, um, for an event for Fireside Chat, and he's an incredible individual. So he really, just the idea and the vision that he had, um, and now this cash product absolutely makes sense because, you know, to actually operate as a business. So I I used to own a business previously, and in order to get the account, I needed to get a co-signer as a Canadian citizen. Mm-hmm. And so that was ridiculous. You're not going to let that go, are you? Like, <laughs> I am like, never going to let that go. As a Canadian citizen. As a Canadian citizen. Canadians are known for their right? bitterness. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she, she looks at, she looks so at nice, you eh? every time as well. It's like, it's your fault, you know? I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking at all, you're American, right? Mm-hmm. There you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How could you tell? <laughs> we're we're going to sit you two apart for the second half. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. We're, we're buddies now. Um, but no, honestly, it's it got to the point where I couldn't even open up an account for my business. I had to get someone to co-sign for me. And that's so demoralizing when you're trying to own a company and you're starting this and you've you know purchased a property, et cetera, you've done this. Um, again, I wish Brex had been around back then because I could have gotten my card, I would have had my account, wouldn't have had to go and step somewhere else and provide all this documentation. I mean, I think it's fabulous that these fintechs are coming out with these ways of just speeding up your ability to innovate. You know, that's essentially what, what they're doing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I, I echo that experience. Like when I moved over to the United States for N26, Opening up a bank account took like probably, it was a four to five week long project that I had to run like with multiple like touch points, actually people helping me to get this mm. account from my team that I could have been hiring, I could have been talking to customers, I could have building, been building the app, whatever else, it would have been much more efficient than trying to fill in paper forms and sending them around, yeah. um, trying to open a bank account. So yes, I think Brex and these guys... Um, are onto something. You can debate whether the valuation and traction does reflect some of the true sort of fundamentals. Uh, but I think uh, in terms of potential into the future, uh, there's definitely a lot there. Mm. And I see like in New York, like when you speak to friends at other startups or the other founders, a good chunk have bricks yeah. cards in their wallet. I mean, it's, it's sort of universal global problem. Uh, you know, 
SMB, SME banking is sort of woefully bad everywhere, mm. unfortunately. Um, you know, to the point where it's it's essentially just retail banking that people charge you for, which is weird. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the idea that you can do pretty much everything in your life now digitally, but you've got to spend 10 weeks and loads of forms to go get a, a bank account is just crazy. So um, is, we, is the new product, is it just cash flow management? Is that what they've, which is really smart, by the way, like it, it it destroys businesses. Hmm. Um, so it's just giving you a, a like clarity on your cash flow. Is that so? I I actually haven't used the product um, myself, uh, but I from what I gather, it's making you can. It's basically a bank account, so you can store value there, and you can make payments as well through the ACH uh, rails and wire. Yeah, and your Brex card would be you know connected to that. So now it's just a completion of the Brex product. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys have also seen Expensify has come out with something as well. There's like a daily credit sort mm-hmm. of clearing account as well. But it's it's definitely an area that um, needed some innovation. What I find really odd is all of these um, sponsor banks on the back end that sort of piggyback on these things. And, and so they it just drives me mad because I don't understand why they wouldn't just roll up their sleeves and start working on this stuff. But they would rather – so in terms of the valuation, um, in terms of the valuation thing, I, I do think it's highly inflated – I mean, it's it's sort of, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, why wouldn't the banks just do this? I don't know. It, it looks and sounds easy, doesn't it? I mean, like, if you say it out loud, but, like, I, I guess the, the problem that they've got is they've done the bit that they're now benefiting from, essentially. So, you know, it, it's kind of almost um, bank as a platform in a very different flavor where they've done all of the regulatory digging out from a licensing perspective, but uh, kind of in a situation where they probably can't, you know, in the nicest possible way, get their shit together in terms of <laughs> having multidisciplinary teams to build the experience stuff, which always looks easy, but every bank we've ever come across have spent billions of pounds and not really done it. Well, the company that I was part of previous to this um, was actually a bank as a service mm. platform, and I was part of the founding team there. Um, so I know how easy it is, Yeah. right? And it's just a matter of getting that regulatory sort of ch- ticking those boxes, getting a couple of smart developers mm. in place, um, and and we you know we worked very closely with our bank partners to ensure that they were kept up to speed too. And, yeah. and I just I still can't wrap my head around it because you see not just what where I used to work, but you know companies like Brex, companies you know, you know that are doing this, building on top of these banks. And it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I mean, because it's so much harder to get reg, you know, getting a license, getting a banking license here is tough, right? Um, you know, Nick. You're nodding on the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can like, I can elaborate yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, then actually, like almost like where you create differentiations in the the digital services at the top of it, isn't it? But I mean, essentially, what we're talking about is like why can't gigantic banks do what startups do? It's actually it's like talent and culture, right? Well, I I wonder actually if they're waiting for everything to blow up in our faces. <laughs> Honestly, that that's the only thing that I can imagine is that they really are seeing this as a bubble that's about to burst. And so they're happy to profit from it right now on the back end, sit quietly, kind of wait, and collect those deposits without any effort, Um, but that they really are expecting something to happen. Maybe that I'm just being suspicious. Um, I I kind of, I've sort of looked at this, I've been trying to figure it out myself, right? And and I I think if you're a community bank and you really understand your geographic niche uh, and you're good at it and you've got branches and you know your customers who want to be banked in a particular way, it's kind of low risk for you then to just get exactly what you say. It's like access, free access to deposits. Mm-hmm. Potentially, if you're smart, it's it, you can get access to online lending as well. And then, as long as you keep your deposits, uh, your assets below ten billion, you're also getting nice interchange thanks to the Durban Amendment. So I'm like, it's kind of like 
you're not having to mess with your core brand. You're not having to mess around with your core banking system. You're not having to mess around with your customer base. And these guys are just sort of turning up and giving you a revenue stream and access to deposits. You're like, free money. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And you're lazy fuckers. Just kidding. <laughs> 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 they're just being lazy. I, I they're different... just being lazy. But you're also so, tied to a ju- Like, there's limited amount of resources. So I have a little bit of a, a different view, actually, because I think you, you have limited amount of resources. I, I imagine myself sit somewhere and... I've never been to these states, so I'm not even going to name one, but it's uh, somewhere in the United States uh, between the coasts. You sit there, you're trying (laughs) to, um, you you have your community bank, it runs profitably, you have your one, 200 employees. Mm. Um, It is a nice additional revenue stream, and you may not have the ability to hire the top Google engineers from the Bay Area, and you may not frankly want to take all like you may not have the expertise or the, the risk appetite so well or, 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 or even even your customer base don't need the change you know and actually sure. a lot of the states that we're kind of referring to to a certain degree are uh, you know small community banks who are have a very uh, branch based experience currently I, I honestly think I think it's you know probably organizations facing into significant opex. Uh, who were looking at actually how do they sweat those assets to almost reduce the cost of running their IT for themselves and almost like leasing it out. It's like they've taken like the Airbnb model. It's like, I'm going to be away from the weekend. We're going to rent our call banking. <laughs> like this will all be fine. And like nobody like... That, well, that's actually a perfect analogy for that. Yeah, there you go. Love it. I did it without the beer. Like I don't know where it comes from. I have one question on Brex, which um, I don't know if anyone's got a view on around... Uh, do they not have a risk to their business model from Stripe moving into this into the corporate cars? Surely that's like dead on. Well, I want them to do well, by the way, because I think the, isn't the the, the CEO is like twenty three, which is younger than my previous boss, who was twenty six, and I made a point. And <laughs> 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 also ran a card scheme, but like yeah, but like the but the, surely the Stripe thing is 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 a big risk for them, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I think Stripe's probably a big risk to everybody really given how they're going but uh, but yeah i mean opportunity there for them for sure i mean the, the biggest problem i have with this one being a brit is like i can't say brex without like negativity coming mm. into my head around <laughs> brexit really so like oh, just the branding side of things would just put me off but yeah. uh, they're also paying uh they're paying rewards on the ach transactions right i think that's one of the really fascinating dimensions to this which um I don't know. I mean, to me, it strikes me as a big differentiator. I've not seen that before. And I wonder, I mean, I'm not saying it's a competitive advantage against Stripe per se, but I do think it's a, it's something that stood out. When I yeah. Saw and it. I'm not, I'm not like, I, I think it's a fantastic business. And I think serving, uh, having run some young tech companies, uh, I'm so happy Brex has turned up and done it. That like fresh thinking with a young team is amazing. I'm just trying to work out, are they direct competitors or is there something that Brex is doing that, that differentiates them or is it just a market that they aim at? I'm, I'd, so, so my personal view on this is that I think Stripe will be a very strong competitor for Brex, because basically Stripe does. I think that the, the advantage or how I think about Stripe is, I mean, they're building a platform. They have all the you know e-commerce payments. They have a fair bit of information on the revenue side of all these companies already. Uh, they're offering other services as well that makes you makes it easier for you to found your companies, incorporate your companies. I, I think Atlas is the service it's called. Um, so they do a lot for startups already. This is just one additional building block. Um, and and I think I do think that will be a head-to-head um, uh, race at some stage uh, between mm. the two companies. Yeah, very likely. All right, moving on to the next story we have on Finextra. This is Oak North appoints ex-Google executive as their platform business CEO. So Oak North, uh, if you guys don't know, they're a uh, SME lender in the UK. Uh, doing pretty amazing things, actually. They're 
probably the most successful challenger bank in the UK, I'd say, in terms of the profitability and the scale of them, in terms of how quickly they got to uh, multiple unicorn status. Um, they're pretty damn cool, I have to say. Uh, have announced the appointment of Sunil Chandra, who is uh, was previously at uh, Google from 20, uh, 2007. So apparently he scaled the company's talent and global footprint from 7,000 employees to 100,000 today, which is pretty damn impressive, I have to say. I'm pretty sure he didn't do all of those interviews himself, though. Um, prior to this, he was uh, COO of technology at Barclays Capital for over two years. And before that was director of administration at McKinsey. Um, I kind of went off him and towards the end there, I guess. Um, but pretty big appointment, right? You know, being able to get senior Google executives to join, uh, you know, a, a kind of middle of the market uh, SME lender, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, he must be getting something pretty impressive to kind of leave Google to kind of go and join there. Is this just talent kind of, is, is this... I, I was is this fintechs growing up and starting hiring like the big boys rather than the other way around, or what do you think? Yeah, I, I can. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating hire because I've always liked North for their sort of um, uh, almost like they're, they're not flashy. I mean, you know, they they do a good service that's needed for middle of the mid market businesses. Um, it's kind of like okay. What are you doing here? This mm. is super interesting, but I I don't know whether it's just that the guy's really good at hiring or whether. Uh, he, they've got a, a wider plan, I don't know. Well, I know, um, obviously, from a, a platform perspective, if, where his focus is going to be, uh, Acorn, the platform that they're spinning out off the back of what they've been so successful doing for themselves, if essentially the role is to take that global and really, really expand it, sounds like a pretty good hire. But yeah, they must have given him something impressive to, to join, I guess. I think it's also exciting for some of these uh, more senior execs to just like start again. Like If you have that innate drive to build businesses, um, it's obviously... Like respect if you build a uh, Google from seven to a hundred thousand employees or help build uh, Google uh, to that scale, but it may also be fun just to do it again in a slightly mm. different role and capacity. So I, I can see how these people have the fire. Um, we actually also at N26 just hired an ex Google, um, uh, ex McKinsey um, uh, uh, person. Wow, there's, a, there's a pattern for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, uh, Christian Grosse, who's going to be a senior exec uh, to help with uh, the banking side of things. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's exciting for these people to just like roll mm. their sleeves up again and yeah. go go all in. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you guys, Revolut as well, like people coming in from HSBC and various different places. So I mean, uh, like I say again, is this essentially fintech getting to the point where actually it's a very attractive thing for senior executives to to sort of continue the trajectory of their career rather than uh, like a you know a it's like a punt into the abyss on a, on a small startup. You know, fintech has got to the scale where it's a proper competitor for talent, which is, that's exciting to me. Yeah, I, I do think it gets addictive, that need for speed, that need for growth. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, there are only certain number of positions of CEO type of level in the enterprise market. Um, and then, you know, do you want to just repeat that or do you want to stay relevant so I think part of it is also noticing all the billions of dollars in VC funds that are going into these startups without the responsibility or the requirement of actually being revenue positive, right? Um, so here you've got this opportunity. You've worked whatever 20, 30 years up the ladder in this career world. And then now you're like, oh, gosh, I can have some fun with all these millions and billions of dollars being poured into my company 
um, and I and I can just literally be creative. Mm. So I, I think it is uh, like on one hand, from that executive's perspective, a chance to be creative and be relevant and and contribute in in a fast moving space. But then also from the fintech space, as the game becomes more focused on how much can you raise. It, you want to seem a little bit more mature and grown up. And so you're kind of bringing over your more mature friend and saying, hey, look, let this person speak for me and hopefully they speak your language. So I think it's like a, it's a, yeah. you know. I mean, Rishi, who's the founder of uh, Oak North, who I know will be listening to this as well. So I like better jump in with this one really quickly. It's <laughs> like Oak North are one of the most profitable fintechs. Like those guys have turned profitability, uh, I think within about 18 months of them actually starting the organization. So they, they've done an amazing job to almost find that mid-market between uh, where banks can kind of lend to people and actually creating the operational process to kind of get money into the bank for uh, startups. They've taken a really interesting approach where it's like it, they have a, uh, an element of sort of algorithmic lending, but it's actually more VC-backed. So they will meet the founders and go through the process and, you know, say no if they're weird and all that good stuff. Um, but, um, but actually, so it's, it's an interesting sort of process on that where actually it's like human-led lending, which is good. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty damn profitable so far anyway. So. And also, if you're looking in from Google, it's kind of, I mean, Google very specifically because it's like large quantities of data, marketing, you probably never wanted to go to the investment banking side because, yeah, I don't know, you know, like that's, but you, you, you've probably got a slightly retail bent or a, like a small business bent. And I always think the, the classic model is Dan Cobley, who headed up your, uh, Google in Europe and then started, went to do Blenheim Chalcott that threw out a whole load of fintechs um, in the UK, like Modular and um, ClearScore. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting set of challenges, right? It's like, if you're at Google, you're just sort of, you're the best in the world. And now it's like, hmm, let's, let's go through and it's got data, it's got marketing, which a lot of banking is, if we're honest. Well, I mean, I wonder if this is an element of like, I mean, a hundred thousand person organization that Google is now. I mean, is the, the opportunities to really sort of, you know, build new things and move things forward. I wouldn't say Google are really at the pinnacle of innovation in the way that they were in, in the past. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe again, it's just a slight sign of the time. Freedom. You know, finally mm-hmm. having freedom. I, I spent some time in my earlier on in my career at Cisco Systems. And while it was a great employer at the time, it was John Chambers was there. Um, but I can't imagine when I look on my LinkedIn at my former colleagues that have still been there for 15, 20 years. And I think, oh, my God, like you're still there. That to me just it feels terrifying. Um, I, I don't think I could do it. So I can imagine these are people with just that itch, you know. And also from a startup's perspective, um, I mean, you, you go in with this grand ambition like you feel you can conquer the world you don't need anybody's help like you can do it yourself uh no need for the experience no need for anything um uh, just a bit of money and the drive right Uh, but i think at some stage um you start realizing and i I see that also for myself and 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 at n26 is it is good to bring in these experienced people like just Mm. to mix that sort of deer in the headlights ambition like we can do this with a bit of experience and look this we failed at 10 times at this already in the past maybe you try this way yeah and sort of that experience and shortening these learning cycles can yeah. be very helpful as well I, think. I mean startup 101 right uh you know hold the ceiling up as long as you can and hire better people around you right so maybe <laughs> this is uh, again point in cycle yeah. and and yeah and i think uh, a, a very good friend of mine started a business called qubit but he was actually at google when it was like 20 people in London, which is weirdly when Dan, I think roughly started in Google. So he, 
I think that they must be pattern matching certain things. Because I remember going to that office in Soho Square and it was like amazing. It was like, my God, we've got beanbags and there's a slide and it's incredible. And then by the time he left or the last meeting I had in Google, I mean, you arrive, you hand in your ID, a nice person on the door gives you coffee. It's like, oh, there's still a beanbag, but it's kind of never been touched. You know, <laughs> these people are just working in a big corporate office. So I, I guess if you were had gone through that, you're pattern matching it and looking at fintech and thinking wow well okay retail finance it is you know yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword right the like the knock-on effects of hiring making a hire that is uh, a signal to the market right on the one hand in the best case scenario it gets read by the next round of hires and growth as professionalization and uh we're actually a grown-up company and we know what we're doing now um and you know even just in our context we're a much smaller kind of environment people who we interview and bring on, like that's one of the first questions they're trying to assess. I've noticed is just like how um, how grown up is this company, right? And and that actually can have two meanings. On the one hand, some people want a high degree of assurance that the level of excellence they want in a company is signaled by people who have this pedigree background. Um, and on the other hand, it's you know sometimes the, it's too grown up, and it can be <laughs> the beanbag never gets any out of the closet anymore. So. Oh, poor beanbags. Like I feel it's cute. It's cute that he's like, yeah, I'm going to get back to beanbags. I'm going into fintech. Uh, all right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with you shortly. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. All right, let's get on with the second half of the show. So first up, we have another story over on Finextra. Those guys have been pretty prolific this week, haven't they? Uh, NatWest trials UK's first biometric credit card. So NatWest is piloting a cutting edge in uh, comma, speech commas there, just so you don't think that was me saying this was cutting edge, uh, biometric fingerprint technology with 150 customers piloting this. Uh, so it, it is a MasterCard and Gemalto uh, sort of mashup here with the banks having a biometric debit card. So it's the first time that these credit cards have actually been issued. The biometric credit cards will offer contactless payments using fingerprint verification for transactions up to £100. So obviously, I mean, in the UK right now, it's a, a limit of £30. But we're essentially strapping a fingerprint sensor on a credit card. Thoughts for everybody? What do you guys think to this one? I mean, it's... an. Uh... Yeah, this one I struggle with, I think. And this one's an interesting mix of technologies that I think has been looked at for a while. And I, I heard you say that it's the first time it's actually been issued in the market, but it's not It's not the first time we've actually seen this technology. Uh, I, I recall that at least a couple of times before, as far back as I recall to 2015, I've seen this uh, demoed and piloted in Silicon Valley as like a way of a f sort of, you know, the pitch is it's kind of a two-factor authentication type of model for at the point of transaction. Um, and I think we've seen that technology. It hasn't really had a home until now. And maybe that's really the news here is it's finally found a home. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that it has been around for such a long period of time. And this is probably the first time it's been put into sort of production, as it were. Um, 
It, it but, reminds me of that. Do you remember that Simpsons episode where Homer gets to build the car? And he just puts everything on it. <laughs> it's like, it, I mean, I know that's really mean, but like, I just don't think it's solving an actual problem. I, I just think it, it's like one of those moments like, this is innovation. It's like, well, there are other areas that are a lot more impactful to people's real lives. Well, um, well, it's one of those ones like if they then put a screen on it and then like maybe allow me to have like apps on the screen. Oh, like a like a cell phone? Like a cell phone, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe if like you could make calls huh. and stuff, that would I, be... I think my iPhone does that. It does, and I, think yeah. I, I think I have like Apple Pay on there. It does, and, yeah. And I mean, my, my old one used to do my thumbprint. Now my whole face. Yeah. All right, it scans my whole face. Um, it does that stuff, doesn't it? So so it sounds it, like we need a face scanner on the card. Yeah, <laughs> next. We need a big camera. We need three cameras mm. on that card. Card, plus the thumbprint and something that can smell me. <laughs> that is thorough. That really is. Yeah. There are security experts who are very excited by that. But um, I mean, it's 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 sort of a, again going back to that. Just because we can, maybe we probably shouldn't sometimes. Because um, I'm not sure to everybody's point really. I'm not really sure that this solves like an actual problem that we have today because of all of the advancements and everything else that actually we're all sort of carrying around. So like you say, back in, you know, 2015 or earlier, then, I mean, probably a lot earlier, we, we would have been in a situation where this might have made sense, but probably not today. But, um, I mean, if we start seeing these on the tube, I like, I'll eat my words at that point. So, all right, next up, we have a story over on the FT, which is HSBC to ax up to 10,000 jobs in a cost-cutting drive. So HSBC has kicked off a cost-cutting drive that threatens up to 10,000 jobs as the new interim chief executive, Noel Quinn, seeks to mark his, uh, seeks to make his mark on the bank, rather. Uh, any job cuts implemented as part of this latest plan would come on top of the 4,700 redundancies that HSBC recently announced. Uh, the, the cause of these cuts is due to what the execs are causing an increasingly complex and challenging global environment, which I can't even really sort of guess what that means. At least if they were like, it's robots and they're stealing our jobs, then I could sort of understand where they're going. But um, it's been characterized as low interest rates, trade conflicts, and Brexit uncertainty. So yeah, Brexit claims 10,000 jobs. That kind of sucks. Is this just like a sign of the times of big banks maybe thinning out how many people they actually need to do stuff? or Because they haven't been very specific here in terms of what types of people, whether it's, uh, you know, they're closing down. Obviously, HSBC have got a very, very large presence. Maybe if they shut down a bunch of branches, there's 10,000 people that might need to go. I don't, I don't know. but Yeah, it, it depends on what, what roles these 10,000 people have. So, you know, is it a situation where they've determined that they don't need as many branches and they are going to maybe focus a little bit on the digital experience? Um, definitely, these aren't developers that they're getting rid of. So it's it's a matter of who are they actually getting rid of, mm. not just the number. And how many people work there if they're getting rid of 15,000 people? I mean, I, off the top of my head, I think there was well over 140,000 people who worked yeah. at HSBC. It's more than that. It's about 235,000. So I, yeah. I think they need to let go of some more, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they need to get a little bit smaller, and, and maybe then they'll be able to start building some actual user interfaces that make sense? It is, it, it's an interesting question, right? So if, if you go from an organization of 235,000 to 225,000, does that make you, how much more agile does that make you? And at the Sounds same, like the beginning of a really bad joke. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> 10,000 bankers walk into a bar. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know what it pretends. I mean, I think it says something about uh, you know, uh, new strategy, the interim CEO, and the direction they want to go. I think 
I don't think it's, I mean, it was interesting you were reading off the list of like global challenges and complexity. I almost could have imagined a different headline where HSBC adds 10,000 jobs to deal with all the complexity and the, you know, growing environment and so forth. Um, so I, I don't think it necessarily reflects on that. I think what it reflects is a recognition and an acknowledgement by the bank and, and probably a trend among large financial institutions globally that, um, they just need to be more nimble, whatever that means. And I think technology is a big part of that. Uh, you know, branch footprint can also be part of that. Um, but I do think there's a there is a awareness, a growing awareness, and maybe some backed up by some commitment that um, it's not enough to sit still anymore. I mean, the fact that when Noel replaced John Flint, who was the CEO before, apparently two days after he joined this project called Project Oak, which um, I don't know. I can't even come up with a good reason why they would have called it Oak, but Deadwood, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. That was as good as I could. That would be horrible that if that's true. But, um, yeah. but the, the fact that they did it sort of two days after taking over shows probably why the CEO change kind of was there. You know, maybe they're facing into, for an organization of 230 plus thousand people, like your operational cost globally of that organization is just off the charts. Um, maybe is this is the CEO changes looking at making much more radical changes in their kind of OPEX model. Um, but I guess like maybe like the biggest part of the cost is probably not their people. Like the technology must cost them an arm and a leg. Yeah, and I think it's also, I'm not sure like taking on the spot two days in or, or two weeks in, you mentioned uh, announcing something like this. I think it's maybe also easier to blame it on external circumstances, which everybody recognizes will pose challenges on your business versus maybe in actually admitting like we're doing a pretty poor job at XYZ. We need to reduce branches that we've touted will be around for years now. We actually now need to counter, go, like, go against what we said before. Mm. Maybe our technology is is rubbish, or like we need to stack up on on engineers and let go of a lot of operational people. I think these are all much harder messages, mm. maybe to to deliver uh, in early days versus the external macro economic Just environment. Blame, blame it on Brexit. Move on. Yeah, blame <laughs> it on Brexit. Move on. That's the way you get over anything at the moment. But I, I, I mean, it must be horrific for morale if they if they if they do this. You know, you arrive, you say ten thousand. Then there's also all sorts of news about technology. It's like, well, what's the strategy? I'd have married it up with like, look, we need to be serious about technology. That is going to change our bar our, our branch um, profile. Just be like, just be real. Like turning around, going, oh, it's Brexit. It's like, I don't know. Kind of a slightly annoys me as an answer. I mean, look, yeah, lots of um, lots of interesting excuses. I'm sure uh, it would be really interesting to see actually whether Noel ends up being the full time CEO because mm. I mean, with all of the anybody who doesn't know, uh, John Flint was at HSBC for a really long time, like actually groomed as the the CEO in waiting for such a long period of time, and to have sort of lasted at the top for I think just over twelve months before being replaced by the board, that is a pretty significant sort of um, change of kind of direction in terms of the, you know, the, the sort of grooming process and the, the trust in the, the talent process that was kind of set up there. So, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see if actually, I mean, Noel, who uh, ran all of the commercial divisions for HSBC globally for I think 20 odd years as well, um, very much part of the kind of establishment. Really, I thought with the change with John, it might be at the point where they're going to hire, a, you know, somebody who scaled Google from 7,000 to 100,000 people and, and really sort of look at a, a reset. Mm. Um, but really, this looks like maybe more of the same, but maybe with a slightly different strategy at the top. 
Maybe. I think the changing of the guard point is a good one. It's not just John Flint who stepped down. I mean, several folks in the kind of senior leadership chain, so probably most significantly like Pat Burke, who's the head of the HSBC US, um, also stepped down and and, um, and recently um, retired from the bank. And I think that was another kind of longstanding chieftain who um, represented kind of the bringing the bank to where it is today. And I, I do think that... Um, it's a little hard, you know, a bank with the global footprint of HSBC, it's a little hard to make claims that are sort of overarching in terms of like what it means, quote unquote. Um, but at the, I do wonder what it means kind of at the individual country level, right? Because what it means for the bank in China could be very different for what it means to the bank in the UK versus in the US. Yeah. Um, and it's almost, maybe that's the level of analysis that's maybe more useful to think mm. about the bank strategy. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. We will no doubt come back to it. All right. And a finally story, this is a reasonably bizarre one. So uh, stocks and scares. So this is over on Finextra again. We had financial jargon brings Brits out in a sweat. So this is uh, financial technology such as stockbroker. I mean, stockbroker definitely brings everybody out in fear, doesn't it? Uh, Pension um, and uh, various different other um, financial terms brings literal biological stress reactions uh, such as sweating and increased heart rate. So this is a study that Barclays uh, backed had found that uh, 60 people's emotional association with words was was tested by presenting participants with 100 color word combinations and comparing the responses and times and error rates both in neutral and financial terms. So the results showed that two thirds of participants responded uh, to the financial jargon in ways that were uh, indicated increased anxiety. Uh, 17% reported that they broke out in a sweat. Uh, 44% reported that an increased heart rate, 23% reported experiencing muscle twitches. I mean, if somebody says stockbroker and you muscle twitch, I think like you've got definitely some sort of bad association that's took place looking at you, Will. Um, but I mean, what do you think on this one? Is, is it at the point here where financial terms are just so uh, sort of reactory to like the general public that actually like we really need to think about a way of talking to humans like humans, or is this just like a bit of fun? I, um, I, you know, I think seriously on this one. Like, I, I think that like it's a funny article. Stockbroker brings people out of sweats, but the truth is, um, on more day to day, what's a stockbroker doing? It's giving you an ability to put your money somewhere so you have more in the future, so you can be you can live well. Like, just speak normally. Um, you know, the, what's a broker? And it just it's this. Uh, there's a book called uh, How to Speak Money, which I've always thought is amazing, and I've handed to so many people because it basically just says it's a language, and that's not because it's designed to be exclusionary. It's like any industry you go into. We're in a podcast studio right now. There's a series of terms in this room that we, like people who are not in the industry, don't understand. Same thing happens with money, but the problem is it affects everyone rather than people just recording podcasts. So people need to take this as seriously as as possible, is my view. And I think it's really possible also to use terms that are understandable. At the end of the day, it, these are actually fairly straightforward concepts that we're all dealing with. And, and I always wonder to what extent, um, I've also in my previous uh, professional life been at, at an investment bank, and I, I always wonder whether some of the terms that have been used and some of the pitch decks you put together and the advice you give your clients, to what extent is that actually purposely used, um, uh, the terms that are being used there are purposely, uh, purposefully chosen to be a bit, maybe a bit more complex, sound a bit more sophisticated, you sound a bit smarter. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, but at the end of the day, you can break all this stuff down in actually fairly simple mm. terms. And 
explain it to people. I mean, that's that's something I know the I mean, regulation is always used as a, an excuse why you have to sort of like highbrow it, like say from a, a you know financial promotions perspective and all different yeah. types of stuff. Um, but I, th- I honestly think it's like the bit that's been left behind, you know, the the fintech wave has sort of brought back more sort of humanity into those interactions but you know arguably this is something that branch banking was really good at doing you know the having a human doing that interaction between sort of the customers and all the stuff um they were able to kind of make that that sort of move but i did find one piece in this that actually made me feel probably more british than i've ever felt really so it said brits think investing is one of the most difficult skills to learn 29 percent believe it's harder than ballroom dancing which is like, <laughs> I just want to point out to all of our American <laughs> listeners, like ballroom dancing is not like a, a yardstick we use to kind of measure. It's, it's like, oh, it sounds difficult. Is it harder than ballroom dancing? No, it's less hard than ballroom <laughs> dancing. Huh? Fine. That's great. Um, I, one question. I mean, I, I think it's an interesting finding. I actually spin a slightly different interpretation on this finding, which is, is it really the jargon that people are finding stressful? Or is it what, what it's actually driving it? Is it just money? Are people I, just worried about financial health? Mm. I, I always think, so I've, I've worked in banking for 15 years and I always remember the moment that I felt empowered was the moment that I realized if someone used an acronym I didn't know, I could just go, what does that mean? And uh, in, invariably it would be someone's internal spreadsheet. Um, like it wouldn't be anything relevant. But, but I probably spent the first five years of, of my career in banking, like, freaking out constantly about things that just weren't relevant hmm. because they weren't explained to me in a simple term. You, that's somebody working in that industry all the day, whereas somebody else is just sitting there and they're just thinking, I just want money. I want my money to be safe. I want to make some more money. I need to protect it. I need hmm. to pay my taxes. And there's just all this noise coming at them. And they can't, they, 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 you know, it's, it's a side part of their life, but it's an incredibly critical part of their life. And it's just a wall of words that is confusing. And I, I always just think that's, I just know so many friends and family who've got unstuck and basically they get to the point where they go, I just don't know what all these terms mean. Do you you think it's deliberate? Do you think financial institution jargon is deliberate obfuscation to the point we were discussing earlier intended to hide the fact that a lot of this stuff is commoditized and not that complex? Um, I don't think it's intentional. So it's just how these these organizations evolve and Mm -hmm. and go for it. I don't think it's deliberate, but yeah, no, I think it, but then, then it's incentive structures as we were talking about earlier. It's like, you then don't, then no one's incentivized to get rid of it. So, Yeah, I mean, you've got an HSBC, 230,000 people that are using this jargon. Um, but that's that's where the fintechs step in, right? So that's where, you know, companies like Credit Karma can go ahead and break down the information in ways that their users can understand. And that's why you do have 100 million users on that platform. Um, that's why platforms like Honey, for example, are making... Um, you know, coupons available because they basically simplify the process. Um, so I think that's that's where fintechs have really cashed in on is that they've understood that we need to actually go to our customers, speak to our customers in a voice and in a language that they understand. Um, the banks are perhaps regulatory, as you said, David, like they're they're basically their hands are cuffed right now or they feel they are. And they can only use certain language to kind of communicate. Um, but, you know, even fintechs, for example, they'll take an interest rate and then turn it into something else and then give it back as a reward, which is a simplified way of, you know, but then again, regulatory reasons, they can't call it an interest yeah. rate. So there's all these things where fintechs are able to sort of play around with what is there, whereas, you know, a bank wants to work within these four confines or, or feels they need to because of the reputation risk or regulatory risk. 
fintech has nothing to lose. Yeah. I mean, it, it is interesting that like a, a, a like a bizarre strategic advantage of like talking to humans like humans, isn't it? You know, but because I, I kind of think actually when you read back a lot of communications that you get from banks, it's not it's not for human consumption. <laughs> like Correct. it's uh, it's gone through five or six layers of like people trying to protect the organization from the consumer, which is just the wrong way about going about it, isn't it? You know? I mean, and look it, at all that legal ease that you get, mm. right? And if every time you have a card and suddenly the privacy statement has changed, then you get a big book sent to you that you never read. What's it called? Even the, the Schumer box, you know, the mm. disclosures, even that is like a little intimidating. I mean, it's too intimidating for my parents, right? Yeah. You know, even if it's simplified. I think to your point there is, uh, I mean, we're getting, we're getting serious on the funny one here. Um, I, it's, um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's interesting that I don't think the general public have a good enough grasp of basic financial terms. I mean, like, actually, a lot of people don't and cannot grasp how percentages work in a real way. So quoting an APR and actually expecting people to be able to do those things and not break it down in a way that actually just makes sense to normal people is is actually, to your point, Will, it's just excluding a lot of people from really being included in a real way. Uh, and that's, that is terrifying, isn't it? Because that's then, actually, that's the cycle of people getting into really big problems. I, I actually, uh, I've had a couple of examples recently where it comes down to how uh, math here and maths back home is uh, taught. You're, like, re you're really selling in. I'm like, selling yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, um, one of the things I did, my mother, I'm just very unfair to put her on here, but like her and my younger sister are determined that they're crap at maths. Um, and that they don't understand algebra. And I love it when they, cause somebody, a friend did exactly the same thing. They go, oh, it's just all these X's and Y's. And I'm like, great, okay, cool. Go to the shop and buy a bottle of water. And they go, great, um, it's it's 95p. You give them a pound, what do you get back? They go, 5p. I go, congratulations, you just did algebra, but you just didn't think of it in those terms. And when you say that to them, I, I've literally done it to two or three people and they go, what, that's algebra? I'm like, yeah, that's literally like you just figured out a sum in your head. And they go, why don't they just call it that? And then it like locks so many people off. And actually so much of like math should just be taught as like, boom, like what's it to be shopping to do your taxes? Like you don't need to know like the radius of a circle. Like I've never used it, but anyway. But I mean, I think you're right. So um, again, in Canada, we, we <laughs> learn things like compound interest, mm. right? Um, I, I've actually, we, we've learned that we have to, yeah. I mean, we learn compound interest. We, we learn basically that, that we need to know these things. We, we take economics in high school. Um, I don't think that that's the same curriculum now, um, even in Canada, or I definitely know it's not the case in the USA. Uh, but, you know, for, for our son, you know, we have him learning compound interest. He's nine years old. Right. And he's already doing algebra. He's already doing calculus. But that's it, it, people. It's not just the financial terminology. Mm. They don't understand money. Yeah. Everything that's fed to them is all about what can you buy now? You put this money down, you'll pay this much every month and you get to take this thing home. So they never at any point pull out a calculator or even just in their in their mind do like, okay, if I'm paying $12 extra times 12, that's $144 extra that I'm paying for something that I just put, you know, $10, but if I'd paid it now, it would only cost me 80. Uh, so they, they don't they get that. They just hear, I can take that thing I home. I can take that thing home <laughs> and I'm going to satisfy that I've got that instant gratification. And I think it's a whole cultural mind shift that needs to happen. Um, and again, I'm hoping that the fintechs will, you know, empower individuals to do that. But, you know, we had Wells Fargo just opening up random accounts for people. We had, 
you know, there's a whole culture shift that happens ha- has to happen. Yeah, and I think one thing for us in this room, fintech, um, that's uh, interesting to know. We were focusing a lot on maths here and, and the financial terminology. I think the tech piece is also not to be forgotten. I think technology with most recent data breaches and, and a lot of change that has happened over the last 10, 20 years may also turn itself into a little bit of a field where actually people have mixed feelings about it and don't understand it because there's a lot of jargon that, to be used. So I think the challenge for at the intersection of where all of us in this room are at is sort of how do you combine almost jargon on both ends into a solution that is very easy to understand. Mm-hmm. Or, or do we even evolve to a point where you don't need to know what a stockbroker is? You don't need to know what any of these terms mean, but you have your money, you're able to put it into a service or a platform, and you just know that you've got savings coming in. So perhaps it's a it's going to become yeah. commoditized to the point where we don't even need to know that anymore. I mean, I, I completely agree. I think it's, you don't care. I mean, I, I have no real idea how a combustion engine works, but like when I I press the pedal it moves you know what i mean like so exactly and actually i i just need the benefit of the thing right but in order to do that you need to trust that ford make cars that you know when i press the pedal it moves and actually that's probably what we're talking about in the system is is kind of a lack of trust in the people who were giving that advice around the best thing for you is um because actually the best thing for them is that you're in debt the best thing for you is probably to save up Exactly. God, we got really serious on the last one. Gosh. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, we're all going to do some maths. 17% of us are sweating right now. <laughs> we really are. All right. That wraps up this week's show. Uh, thank you so much to our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Ask you. Um, I'm at SoCure, so you can check out our website. You can also email me at asia at SoCure.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Ms. Asya, M-S-A-S-Y-A. Very good. Colin. Nova Credit. So visit us at our website. We have a really beautiful website. We just rolled out a redesign, novacredit.com. Um, and if you want to get in touch with me personally, get in touch. I'm Colin at Nova Credit. Very good. Nick? N26.com. Um, my email address is nick at N26.com. And, uh, email going old school. That's right? Yeah. Um, I like email. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say this here probably, but I like email. Um, no, and then uh, Twitter uh, is uh, Nick Kopp, N-I-C-C-K-O-P. P, I think. Um, it's uh, your name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My name with two Cs. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> All right. That took longer than it should have. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm on Twitter at WillWhite11FS. Very good. And you can find me at David Breer on Twitter. Uh, what do you think of today's show? Do let us know over on at Fintech Insiders or email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Don't forget to head over to 11years.film and check out the documentary that we just put out there. Super, super good. Um, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Okay,